Welcome back to Arab American Psycho. My name is Noor, and this week I have a very special guest. She is the founder of Desert Mannequin. She's a creative consultant and a creative director of Enduo, which is a beautiful clothing brand. Welcome, Anam Bashir. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on, on your show. Of course. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you on. And we were just chatting before we started recording. And I was like, we have to start recording because this is conversation <laughs> gold. We really got uh, into it, huh? Immediately. Like, there was no hesitation. It was like, hey, what's up? And then I'm like, let's just have this. We're now having a really deep conversation about being a Muslim woman and the third culture kid and yeah. respecting parents. Like, that's instantly what it went Let to. Let me explain <laughs> to you all the ways in which I had to explain to my South Asian Muslim parents that I wasn't breaking the cultural laws, you know, <laughs> by dealt by getting into fashion. But yeah, it's, it's what was your start into fashion? So I actually segued into fashion via the contemporary art route, if you will. I um, had gotten married in 2011, um, had recently moved back to Doha where I was born and raised. Prior to that, I was living in New York City with my now husband. We were both at um, doing our master's in in you know, stateside, Wakas, my husband, was in New York City attending Bard, and I was in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon, and we got married, and Wakas and I kind of came to this... Um, juncture in our life where do we, now that we're married, do we go back to New York and figure out what we want to do with our lives? Or are we open to like maybe moving somewhere in the world that could facilitate a, you know, a much more fruitful jumpstart into our careers? Um, at which point we were both offered some really wonderful positions at Qatar museums. Um, you know, Her Excellency Sheikha Mayasa is someone I'd known since I was quite young and she was the chair, she is currently the chairwoman and spearheading this incredible culture, cultural institution. And so Wakas and I decided that, you know, contemporary art was the way to go. And I had, it was such a formative time for me. Um, you know, I've, I've always jokingly said, you can kind of fake fashion, but you can't fake art. You make such... <laughs> incredible intellectuals in, in the art space. And I also think that it gave me a really strong leg to stand on. I was able to build quite a substantial network and meet such wonderful people. Um, some of which who have pretty much changed like the, the face of the contemporary art world, like Marina Abramovich or, um, you know, we've, I got to meet Jeff Koons and oh, Saigo wow. Shang and um, Damien Hirst and, you know. Oh, and that's really cool. Yeah, like super cool. And we were yeah. putting on some of the most notable shows in the region and some would even argue the world. And, yeah. you know, being in your 20s um, and being offered a job that didn't entail checking someone's mail and delivering morning coffee yeah. was like, holy shit, we're actually doing something really cool yeah. here. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's obviously a marriage that exists between the art space and the fashion space. So through my time at Qatar Museums, I was actually able to meet a lot of, you know, notable fashion people like Muchia Prada, um, got to meet Victoria Beckham, Hamish oh Bowles, like really, really interesting people. Franca Sazani, you know, um, before she passed. So um, I realized that very early on in my career that if I was able to start amassing um, kind of like a little book of, of names of people that I wanted to keep in touch with and build, you know, kind of, you, you build a network and then your, yeah. your network actually becomes a, this priceless weapon in your back pocket. And so we were at the museums for um, almost five and a half, almost six years. And then Wakas um, and I moved to Dubai where he um, was hired to design a contemporary museum here, which is really, really cool. And I realized a couple years, I mean, a year or so prior to moving to Dubai that I actually wanted to get into the fashion space simultaneously. So I didn't want to relinquish my role in the art world, but I thought, hey, there's actually no one that's blogging you know, from the Middle East on a more yeah. like kind of international level or speaking to a more global audience. So one hot summer day, I was just sat on my couch <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to start a blog and I don't know what it's going to be called and or what I'm really going to blog about per se, other than chronicling personal style. But I'd been reading all these blogs, you know, I'd been following people like 
Brian Boy and um, Leandra Medine and like yeah, just, the original bloggers, like the original bloggers. Yeah. And I'm like, this is just so fascinating. And they found a really enterprising way to monetize and monetizing wasn't even, to be honest, wasn't even at the forefront of my thought at the time. I just thought I wanted yeah. to create a space where I could compile some cool content and throw it up and see where, where it goes. So I used contemporary art as a backdrop to put on display or exhibit my, you know, so-called fashion interests. I was discovering yeah. interesting new brands, you know, both coming out from the region and then globally. And people had often said to me that, you know, you have really cool style or you don't really, you dress like you've lived abroad. And I'm like, there's like a New York sensibility about you. And, um, you know, where's your, who, who designed your clutch? It's really interesting. So it, I, I often noticed that at like art openings or envelopes or people would approach me and it would kind of be somewhat of a conversation starter. So that was very um, encouraging in a way, you know? So yeah. So I launched Desert Mannequin. I was like, I I don't know if it's a cute name or whatever. I'd seen these post-it notes that I posted to the side of my laptop and I had a bunch of words on it that I would associate with. And I just took desert and I took mannequin and I put it together and I'm like, (laughs) you know, this is, this is going to be it. (laughs) That's how Uh, all great names come together. I, no joke. That's how I came up with the name for my blog and my podcast and everything. I just write down a bunch of words that I feel like apply to me and then stare at them for long enough to be like, this is, this is what I'm going with. Yeah. Yeah. Am I going to hate this? No. You know what I mean? You try to think about it and you're like, does this represent or reflect who I am in some way, shape or form, which I mean, it's always evolving. So it's hard to, it's hard to know, but you know, you grow to like love it because it becomes a part of you. Right. And you wanted to like weather well, like, you know, I just, and I I was like, oh man, I'm sure some people are going to love it. And I'm sure some people are going to hate it, but I can sit and dwell on this forever because I am a bit of like an OCD perfectionist and also like my own toughest critic, or I could just like put the name out there and actually get to doing what I want to do, which is blog. So I, I, you know, I created a little Tumblr page and like, when I think about it, I I know I, I created this like Tumblr page, which was, it was, it was quite simple. It was quite bare bones, but, and then I had, I think I was one of the earliest adopters of Instagram at the time I launched my Instagram, um, account, like, or I was on Instagram, eight years ago, nine years ago, um, under Anam Bashir. And then I soon switched to, to Desert Mannequin, but I've been like documenting my, my so-called outfits for a long time. And, um, initially I, I started off as, as someone who had like rather edgier content. It was highly editorial, very, very curated. Um, and then I guess like, brands, you know, started taking notice. Like one of the first brands that reached out to me in the Middle East was Chanel. And then soon after I heard major, by the way, like as a first brand, like that's like, whoa, holy shit. It was very cool. It was very, very cool. Like one of the first brands that I, that I got an email from and they were like, you know, we'd love to address you or anytime you need anything, or can we meet with you? Or, cause you know, like a lot of times back then those like a lot of the luxury brands and even to this day, they, they won't pay, but they'll, mm-hmm. um, they'll find very interesting and very fruitful ways to, to partner and collaborate with yeah. you. So, um, five years ago when I launched as mannequin, no one was really like of the luxury brands. No one was really paying, like they would maybe gift or whatever, but I didn't care. Cause I had a job and for yeah. like, you know, the, the, we can, we can think about the, the monetizing part later. I just want to kind of establish myself. Yeah. So, yeah. Which so- I think is smart. And I think that in when you're starting off, I think building relationships is yeah. kind of the most important thing that you want to focus on rather totally. than... Uh, let me make some money right off the bat. I think that long-term the relationships have more Mm -hmm. value. And I've always, always advocated that your, your contacts and the people that you work with and your network and, um, the partnerships that you embark upon with brands and people will far outlet mind, you know, being mindful of how you 
negotiate and navigate those relationships. But if you are the kind of person that really truly invests in those relationships, they will far outlive and outweigh any, um, any paycheck. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's far wiser to build robust foundations when it comes to, to relationships, professional and or personal, um, and, and realize that the money will follow suit eventually. Um, and, you know, like knock on wood, like, again, Lacoste was gainfully employed as was I. So this wasn't my, my bread and butter. It was just a really, and I think sometimes the best projects are ones that are, you're not like stressed and worried about having to make money. A hundred percent. Because you just have a lot more creative leg room and you're a bit more unapologetic and you go into it just a lot more unhinged, which is, which is nice. So, so yeah, like it was, Chanel was one of the first brands that reached out to me. And shortly thereafter, it was like, I started getting emails from like Prada, like they're a PR office based in the Middle East and, and then Fendi. And, um, it was kind of amazing. Like, you know, I felt like I was slowly starting to like, you know, tiptoe onto the, onto the fashion space and the fashion map. And, you know, my following grew very slowly, but very organically. And then, um, you know, fast forward a year or so, I was invited to um, fashion direct a store in Doha. So essentially, this person with um, quite a sizable budget was like, you come in, you choose the brands, we want you to essentially be the fashion director of the store, which was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And so like to be the reason why brands like Derek Lamb or Tome or A Piece Apart, um, Natasha Zinko, Ellery, um, like to be one of the first stockists for those brands in that country was like, I thought really commendable for someone who Mm -hmm. was like 27, 28 years old. Um, So that was an amazing experience. And I started going to fashion weeks as a result. So I actually started doing fashion weeks as a buyer and not an influencer. Oh wow! Yeah, and and this was this is back when I feel like it, there weren't even maybe that many influencers attending fashion weeks. You know what I mean? Like no, I feel like yeah, it was, yeah, there weren't. It, it was more so buyers and 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 editors, and those were the people right. attending so you would the show. Predominantly, see journalists. Um, yeah. You would see, you know, you would see um, retailers, and then you would see, you know, cherry pick celebs that would kind yeah. of lace the front row. Um, and it wasn't as influencer driven, um, which, you know, some people have very polarizing views about that. So it was, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, but it was amazing because I, I really, I was really proud of having attended all four fashion weeks consecutively season after season as someone who was, you know, kind of molding and shaping, um, the, the kind of retail space back home. And, it's it's interesting. I've always said like I wonder why more influencers aren't buyers because they kind of yeah. garner this like sense of like desirability for certain brands. You know, we, look. I mean, look at social media today. You see thirty influencers wearing a pair of shoes or carrying a bag, and it becomes kind of a, a phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, I, it was wonderful to be able to kind of call the shots um, in terms of what this very sizable multi-brand store was carrying back then. Yeah. So did that for a few years, all the while, mind you, I was still at the museum, like with a full-time nine to five and really trying to build desert mannequin, like on the sidelines. So you were hustling. I was hustling. Yeah. yeah and that then- is like the definition of hustling. Like I have a full-time job, but then I'm also doing this whole other huge project and traveling and this and that. Yeah. Like you said that you like to be busy. You really do like to keep busy. <laughs> Yeah. And like, it's really important to me to also, you know, keep a nice home and and be present in my home. And it's, you know, it's really important for me to spend quality time with my husband. So we were juggling, you know, our jobs at the museums. And also like, I I have to say like, what costs my husband shoots all of my content for Desert Mannequin. Like he's really, he's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. That's first of all, he's great doing well. Like that's awesome. Like uh, Instagram has been goals. Yeah. (laughs) But also like, I think that for a lot of people that I know getting your husband, your boyfriend or whatever to actually take photos of you and not want to like strangle you is an accomplishment of itself. I mean, there's certain (laughs) days where it's a miracle that we're still married, but, (laughs) but with that being said, like I've always, said that 
if there, there would be no desert mannequin, if there was no Wakas, like he has been my, my biggest supporter, my biggest like cheerleader. He, you know, obviously got an MFA in photographic studies from, from Bard. So I'm like, you know, this was so meant Let's to be. Use it. Yeah. Yeah. You were <laughs> destined to be my Instagram husband. Um, so yeah. Well, he's I'm sure old. when he was a little boy, that's what he was thinking. I hope one day I can be my wife's. I know. Uh, I mean, he hates it. He's there's days where he really, really hates it, but he's like, yeah. this is like, I got to do this. It's like, this is yeah. part of the deal, the partnership. So he's very, um, creatively supportive and, you know, I am very grateful for, um, for this like journey that he's agreed to come on with me. And <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's, it's been awesome. And, and I listen. So for those of you who don't know, Unum also has a podcast called DMFM. And I listened to the episode that you did with your husband. And mm-hmm. first of all, I loved listening to you guys talk to each other. Aww. You can just tell that there is like a deep connection between you two, but also I really appreciated, um, especially, you know, growing up myself being Arab and Muslim and stuff, Mm -hmm. there's always kind of like this stigma around like couples even acknowledging that problems exist and also discussing counseling and mental health counseling openly. And I Mm -hmm. think it's really commendable that you guys, you know, have these very kind of vulnerable conversations and share them with people because I think conversations like that do need to happen and they people do need to hear them and we do need to normalize therapy and, and that marriages aren't super easy and it's not, no. you know, it's just it's like kind of solution for life. Totally. It's not a walk in the park. And I think nobody wins by putting on this like facade or like this yeah. show, right? Like nobody wins. I mean, you're, you're lying to yourself, you're lying to the yeah. audience and you're right. There is a lot of stigma tethered to, um, disclosing the more intimate details of your marriage or confessing to going to therapy or confessing yeah. to suffer from depression or anxiety disorders, or, you know, we typically come from a culture where it's, we're almost kind of encouraged to just like constantly put on a brave face. Don't overshare. Mm-hmm. It's just not becoming. And, um, you know, for good or for bad, Wakas and I actually completely disagree with with those certain kind of expectations and norms that have been laid out. Where we we're actually quite social um, as a couple, and by social, I don't mean we love to go out and party. I mean we're the kind of people that if you're going to embark upon relationships with people, or if you're going to put in that time and effort to build friendships, they need to be built on something more robust and more real than you know, just putting on this, we are perfect. We are like the picture perfect couple, which actually having connections with people and having them know you and you knowing them and, and building a real relationship. That's I mean, that's what a real relationship is. It's like being open. It's just exhausting to, to, to just pretend like I could never, We've never had a problem in our life, yeah. you know, and, and that's what I'm saying. It's so much, it's, there's something kind of also liberating about mm-hmm. being open and honest. And I, I understand that it can be a little scary, you know, to, mm-hmm. cause you feel like you're, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position, yep. but ultimately, I mean, we're all humans. We all go through similar experiences and, and, you know, navigating life is a normal thing and you have ups and downs and it's just all of these things are so normal which is why it's kind of mind-boggling to me that it's still kind of stigmatized you know what I mean because I'm like these are just normal human experiences and you know I think like because my mom is a doctor and you know she works she's a pediatrician she obviously works very closely um with um infant mental health and, and juvenile yeah. mental health and the mental health of young adults. So she's been incredibly supportive of me going to therapy. And, um, my husband's very supportive. Like I, you know, my, my, my sister knows about it. My close friends know about it. Um, and it, I don't think it takes away from how successful I am or how giving no. I am or how, how, like, you know, I'm still a, a very highly functioning. I would like to consider myself like a, just a good human being and someone who is extremely, um, just motivated and inspired. And I, I just, I, I really don't think that there should be these stigmas that if someone goes to get help or addresses mental health issues, that there must be something like, you know, egregiously wrong with them. 
exactly. And, and, and also the thing that I always say, cause I'm, I'm also a, a counselor. That's kind of mm-hmm. my, my oh, that's job. Amazing. Yeah. Therapy can never hurt. It can only help. It's never mm-hmm. going to really negatively impact you. Um, it can only help you kind of move forward and right. guide. It, it just, it's can't ever hurt. And, and I do think that therapy is becoming a little bit more normalized, which is really great because yep. I think people are starting to realize, Oh wait, that's what self-care is. You know what yep. I mean? I mean, I know self-care can be defined in a million different ways, but I think that therapy is one of the truest forms of self-care because mm-hmm. you're taking time to speak to someone who is going to listen and, and you're, you feel heard and it gives you an opportunity to kind of slow down for a second and go through your thoughts and feelings and emotions in a safe environment. And there's really nothing kind of like it. And that, like you were saying, like there doesn't have to be something egregiously wrong for you to go to therapy. You know what I mean? Like you can be quote unquote, totally fine and still benefit from therapy. Like it just, I think that it's really great though that you you spoke about it, especially because this is my assumption is that most of your your um, online audience is based in the Middle East for the most part, and yeah. I think that the Middle East is still kind of working towards. It. I think they've made huge progress, but I think that it's still kind of oh, you go to counseling, hmm, like what's wrong with you? I think, though, living in Dubai now, and because Dubai has such a young population, you know, it's the, the vast majority of the demographic here um, within the UAE are millennials and Gen Zs. And because yeah. we've greatly extinguished a lot of the stigmas that, it, that, that our parents, you know, uh, may have potentially put in place or our grandparents, I find it a lot easier to have those discussions about, you know, the more trying times in your marriage, or I see women being a lot more candid about um, going through fertility issues, for example, mm-hmm. um, or you know, troubling times in a, in, a, in a friendship, or even people um, battling you know identity crises, or people coming out as 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 gay, or even addressing going to something like you know like therapies. So I really very much applaud this younger generation. That's. I mean, I kind of argue, I kind of jokingly tell my parents this, that we're kind of putting you guys on the straight and narrow, but obviously like (laughs) there I say that to my South Asian parents, but my mom very much appreciates, like I have this conversation very, very um, candidly with my mother and she's like, there is something so honest and so real and so uninhibited about our generation that's actually very endearing that's actually helping to address a lot of the problems in our world today you know our generation is the most conscious about the environment you know and and the yeah. damages of that previous generations have have done to the environment sustainability is so important to us um you know just i, I can go on and on about the number of yeah. subjects that we have addressed head-on and are making a conscious decision to change Um, there's a lot of awareness I will say like it's a lot of just kind of I think it it does have a lot to do with social media because I learn a lot like I I listen to NPR every so often when I'm in the car but I don't really you know watch the news I'll read news articles but a lot of my information or you know news I guess is through social media and then I'll go and look for more on that topic on my own but I think that with social media there is kind of this awareness going around and you can't look away from it. You can't act like it's not happening. Like sustainability, like I feel like in the beginning when it kind of started, I guess, for lack of better words, becoming trendy, which I don't think it's a trend, but you know, it it became like a buzzword. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people kind of viewed it in kind of like a jokey kind of way, like, oh, like whatever. But now it's, I think people are realizing no way this is very serious and we all have to do our part. And, you know, I think we're kind of the first generation to do that. I agree. I completely agree. And I think that we're very special because of the way that we are actually targeting and remedying a lot of the social 
environmental, mental, emotional, political issues that we have kind of inherited from, from previous generations. Yeah, definitely. And, and we were chatting about this before we started recording, like, you know, growing up, kind of being a third culture kid. And I love what you called it, which is being an inter- international school kid. Is that what yeah. you said? Like everyone's because, like, oh my God, your English is so great. I'm like, yeah, it's international <laughs> school kid accent. I went to a lot of international schools too. So that definitely, mm-hmm. I'm like, yep, that I, I went to. And, and it's so funny because it really is just kind of this melting pot where you have every country in your classroom and you're exposed to so many cultures and so many just kind of different like experiences and, and, you know, we're all put in this place. And I, I do think that it's, it's a really unique experience to Mm -hmm. go to an international school. Like it really is like, I'm really grateful. I think at the time I was annoyed at my parents. Like, Oh, I just like want to live in America. Like, why do I have the, like, why do I have to go to school here? But now totally the same. I thought I was growing up in some village and I'm going to just grow up being so uninformed and just being, you know, just completely not with it. And I went to school with amazing kids and all over the world. And, you know, we all kind of joked and, and, and exchanged stories from our various like different vantage points being like our culture or religion. And I think it's, it's actually in hindsight, I feel far more enriched than had I maybe gone to a quintessential American high school, which all my cousins went to. And I'm like, haha, I'm way more informed than you are now. (laughs) Exactly. And it's just like, and I think that's one of the things that you write where you realize as you get older, just like, Oh wait, that was actually a really important experience for me. Mm -hmm. I think my parents did actually know what they were doing. They didn't just haphazardly drop me in this school and, you know, fingers crossed, everything turns out great. I think they knew exactly what they were doing. They were were doing. Yeah. yeah, And I'm like, Oh, thanks mom. You're, you're kind of smart and cool. Thanks for that. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's funny though, because I went to an American middle elementary school and middle school, like a very typical American um, middle school. And my parents were like, this is, this is not going down the road that we wanted to. So we're going to pull them out before it's too late. And I went to um, an international, very small prep school that did the IB program. I'm not sure if, you know, maybe some of the listeners might not be, um, well versed the IB program. So it's the International Baccalaureate program, which I believe originated in Switzerland. And it's very okay. it's um it's a, a bit more rigorous um than like say traditional AP, like the AP gotcha. course route or like the A level course route that people would take in the UK. Um and it was it's very demanding. It's like pre college prep um and it's it's, I mean, it was very, a very European standard of education, of higher level mm-hmm. education, like secondary school, which Americans call high school. And my parents loved that you couldn't graduate unless you had done 200 hours of community service. Um, there oh, was wow, an that's element. Amazing. Yeah, there was an element of philosophy. We had to study um, college level economics or history or English writing at at a high school level. So we were basically acquiring credit, like college credits while still being high schoolers. So it was extremely demanding, very rigorous. My, one of my cousins had done it in boarding school, um, in Geneva. And my parents were just so thrilled with everything he had accomplished. He's like, yep, that's what we're going to put on and um and in. Um, so that's what we ended up doing for high school. And it was amazing. Like, I think one of the craziest moments that I will hopefully never, ever forget is um, walking into school in the middle of the week. Um, and our school started so early. We had to get there like around 6.50 in the morning. And we wore uniforms. And just my sister and I would just be like yawning the whole way to school. <laughs> and we get to homeroom. Um, and our head of girls 
kind of like Miss Trunchbull and Matilda, but maybe not so mean. <laughs> I'm but, like, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have a chokey, but she she yeah. was terrifying in her own way. Yeah, that seems like it would be some type of violation of children's rights, but uh, glad there's she no was chokey. Just, she was just a tough cookie, you know, like I don't want to, I want to be, I don't want to be horrible against her, but you know, like we went to the kind of school where there's like no nail polish, no multiple piercings, closed toe yep, shoes. I'm, I'm you know. familiar with those schools. Not right. even just not closed toe shoes. They have to be very specific shoes. Very specific. You have like two different shoes you can choose from yeah and so she's like spruce up you know make sure you guys look on your best because guess who's delivering your morning assembly speech and we're like who like who like what what could be so interesting it's up and it was fidel castro holy shit yeah and like wait what yes and i was like okay I'm 14, but I know that, that is really cool. <laughs> I'm like, uh, that's that's cool. Like, literally, I I was like, where is she? Go? Who could possibly? Who could it be? Fidel Castro is not would not have been one of my guesses. You right? could have gave me a hundred guesses. I would not have guessed that. That's insane. Very so, cool. So as much as I resented my parents for pulling me out of my American middle school where I'd made oh a ton of God. friends and dumped me into this like almost boarding school situation, um, in hindsight, I was like man, that is cool. Like I got to meet like Madeline Albright and oh, Queen shit. Rania and, you know, Fidel Wait, Castro. What is this amazing school? Because I just like want to go there and like hang out there. Like I'm like, I know that I'm a grown adult, but I just want to be here because I want to meet cool people like Madeline Albright. Like what the fuck? This, that's yeah. crazy to me. And yeah. I'm just like giving you the tip of the iceberg. Like we met some really cool people. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, so Q, uh, Qatar Academy um, sits within Education City in Qatar, which is the brainchild of Her Highness Sheikha Moza. And um, basically she um, – very early on, um, realized that Qatar needed to build itself into a knowledge-based economy and investing in um, world-class education. You know, it is a very energy-rich country, but investing in world-class education is imperative to, to see future generations thrive. And so she went around in the early days that I'm talking to you like early to mid nineties and started planting these seeds by offering world-class institutions, some very, 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 um, sizable donations and endowments to the likes of Georgetown and Cornell and Carnegie Mellon and Texas A&M and Northwestern. So all of these schools have received hundreds of millions of dollars in endowments to bring their most notable majors or colleges to Qatar. Yeah. Um, so you have like Texas A&M, Virginia Commonwealth, George- Georgetown, Northwestern, Carnegie Mellon, Cornell. Um, and Cornell was, I believe, you might have to fact check this though, the <laughs> first Ivy League to actually um, build a campus outside of the United States. But that's so interesting, though. I also I had no idea that Qatar had this whole just kind of yeah huge focus on education and massive massive so focus. Basically, what my mom does is she like builds schools and universities and helps them develop curriculums and stuff. Oh, wow. And I have now that I'm thinking about it, I have a memory because. That's why we lived in Dubai and that's why we lived in Malaysia because mm-hmm. she was there for work and stuff. But I have a vivid memory and it was towards a time that I was kind of graduating from high school and my mom and dad were thinking about moving back to America. Mm-hmm. Um, she had, I remember she was getting a lot of job offers in Qatar and like thinking back, I'm just like, what, why are you getting so many job offers? Like what's going on in Qatar? Like, and, yeah. and Kuwait, I feel like too, was also kind of, no, maybe mm-hmm. it was Bahrain, not Kuwait. And I feel like she would, she would tell me like, no, yeah, like they have a very big emphasis on like education. curriculum building and education yeah. and, and yeah. this and that. And I'm like, oh wow. Like I had no idea it was kind of to that extent. That's super impressive. No, it's like they, it was like, no holding back. There was, it was yeah. carte blanche in terms of like, you know, no budget was, was too big. Yeah. It's like anything to ensure that these, this next generation, these kids have every tool at their disposal to become highly successful adults. And that's amazing. So, so this prep school that I went to, it's like, <laughs> like 
I remember um, post 9-11, you know, obviously being an American kid growing up in the Middle East, um, Thomas Friedman came to interview us for an op-ed that he was writing for the New York Times and, you know, like interviewing a handful of students at Qatar Academy, um, some of which were American, some of which weren't, some of which were Muslim, some of which weren't, and just compiling um, the opinions and the thoughts of young kids, you know, um, living and studying outside of the United States and what their impression and impact and thoughts were behind such uh, such a you know, such a heinous act that arguably changed the world. Yeah. So, you know, like I remember telling my husband who is an ardent reader of Thomas Friedman's pieces, like, Oh yeah, this guy. Oh yeah. I met this guy in, in, in high school and he interviewed <laughs> me and we'll possibly be like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Why did you tell me this on our first date? You know, it's like super casual. Like, Oh yeah. He's a homie. Like it's, it's yeah. fine. I've known and him since he, I was like 14, whatever. <laughs> It's nuts. And then he came on Oprah or Oprah had done an interview with him. Yeah. And then he basically shared um, like a little video excerpt of our interview on Oprah. So I've technically Stop. been on Oprah. <laughs> Stop it right now. I'm like, you know, I'm going to search this. I'm going to find this YouTube video because Apparently, I know it's out there. It's, it's somewhere out there where he had done some kind of talk or Oprah had interviewed him. And I think it was very much along the lines of 9-11 and the impacts and like this like yeah. ripple effect um, that we've seen globally. And I was told by like an uncle or like a friend living in the <laughs> States, like, I think I just saw you on Oprah because <laughs> Thomas Friedman was playing this clip from his time in Doha. And I was like, you That's know amazing. what? It's very possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, well, it's just I can't nuts. believe you've been on Oprah. That's <laughs> technically. Like, yeah. I mean, Hey, listen, let's, we don't even need to use the word. Actually, technically. Yeah, you yeah. were on Oprah. You <laughs> Hell, I was were on, on Oprah. Oprah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You were on Oprah. I mean, you should, you need to tell, start every conversation with, hi, my name is Adam. I've been on Oprah. I've um, been on Oprah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just nuts. And you know, like you don't appreciate that as a 14 or 15 no, year old. I no, mean, it takes not. you getting into your thirties to be like, yeah. holy moly, that was pretty formative and pretty amazing and my I guess probably thinks that I'm having like a mental break I'm sorry to cut you but like literally recently I've been calling her and just being like thank you so much for like this and that and and uh, you know pushing through and making sure yeah. that I I did get my a levels while or while I was simultaneously doing my SATs because I was uh-huh. giving her a lot of pushback like what do I need to do a levels for I'm going to college in America like this doesn't you know why why do I need to do this why do I need to do that and she was like trust me like you will appreciate this like later in life and I was like oh whatever like you don't know and I'm like been calling her recently because I'm telling you you don't appreciate it until you're older I'm like mom thank you so much for this and she's just like are you okay like did something fall on your head mm-hmm. like what why and I'm just like I never appreciated these things before. And just and having now, a mom appreciation week. Yeah. I've been yeah. having that like nonstop. I feel like ever since I turned 30, like something clicked in my head and I was I like, know. my we parents presenting the them. People. I know. We stopped <laughs> presenting them at one point. There's like this shift, this like kind of yeah. seismic shift that happens within your soul. And they go from being like your kind of nemesis to being yeah. like your friends. And then you kind of like also, I've also hit moments where I'm like, man, I actually kind of really feel bad for them sometimes, you know, where like, there's like this guilt of like having argued with them in the past or just, you know, just resenting them in the past and or just saying mean things that teenagers say to their parents without recognizing that they're humans with emotions. And like, I've had these conversations with my mom because I'm an asshole and I'm, I've said some asshole things to my mom. Yeah. And I was like, did, did that ever affect you? And she's like, of course it did. Like, mm-hmm. of course it's upsetting when your child says something like, you know, you don't care about me or you don't, you know, just crazy shit that teenagers say. Like, which I mean, is teenagers like, can be such shits. Yeah, they really, really can. And like, I mean, I have a lot of nieces who are teenagers and I'm like, wow, you guys are angels. Like I was a jerk. I was, <laughs> I had an attitude problem. I mean, I was a good kid. Like I never really did anything too rebellious, but I definitely uh-huh. had a lot of emotions and feelings and mm-hmm. I felt the need to express them very loudly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, my parents, you know, they're, they, the shit that they put up with, I'm like, how, 
how are you, how did you not kill like at least one of us? You know what at I mean? Least, just just at one. Least. Just yeah. one, you know, like how is one of us not just mysteriously missing? Because it's, it's a lot. And the guilt thing really does. That's something that I, I started Wait, thinking how about. How many siblings do you have? I have five older siblings. I'm oh, number six. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so you at yeah. least had options if you didn't get along with one of them. <laughs> I yeah. had no options. Yeah. Oh, oh no. And that's the thing. My oldest sister is 16 years older than me. So oh, she wow. was kind of like mom number two kind of mm-hmm. figure. So like mm-hmm. if my mom was kind of not giving me what I wanted, I would go to mom two, aka my sister, and she would do the thing that I wanted. Also, my dad is a complete giant teddy bear sucker and literally did whatever I wanted. My Aww. mom was a scary one. My dad is just, he seems scary, but he's like one of those little marshmallows on the mm-hmm. inside. So just mm-hmm. whatever I wanted. He was like, okay, yeah, no problem. But like, I think back to it and I'm just like, what an asshole I was because you gave me all of these incredible experiences, which I feel so privileged to have had and to travel that much by like the age of, I don't know, 16. That's not normal. Like that's not the norm. Most people don't travel abroad until they're much older and Mm -hmm. having these unique experiences that I might've resented them for at the time, I really, really appreciate. And I think that they kind of made me the person I am today. And I really like the person I am today. So I'm just mm-hmm. I, I'm feeling very, I, you just hit a point where you're just like, wow, my parents are kind of the best and I'm kind of an asshole. <laughs> I know, but at least you're, you're the type of as- asshole that like experienced that shift pretty early yes. on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah, a good yeah. person, it seems like. You, yeah. You, <laughs> we all learn from our mistakes and some yeah. people go their entire lives being assholes. So you're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I appreciated that. Thank you. Yeah, that's the thing. I am an asshole, but a self-aware asshole, which is a key, you know? So, if you're gonna, yeah. yeah. A but, little self-reflection goes a long way. So so your parents still live in the States. Do you visit them often? Do they visit no, my you? my parents live in Doha. So they're oh, the sorry. only two. So my dad okay. is the only sibling from his side. My mom's the only sibling from her side that isn't living stateside. So uh, my parents still live in Qatar. They're, they love it there. They're never going to leave. Um my I mean, mom. it sounds incredible. Like, honestly, you should work for the Board of Tourism for Qatar because I want to go there now. I've never had an urge in my life to go to Qatar <laughs> until this conversation. Like, no, I want to just- go to Doha. It's actually such an amazing part of the world. You know, I have always advocated the GCC. Like, you know, I live in Dubai. I'm, I very proudly live in Dubai. It's an amazing city. It's a city that has afforded me a lot of opportunity. I meet wonderful Mm -hmm. people. I've been able to live a very, um, you know, fulfilling and I've, I've had a very successful life here. Um, I think I can count my list of complaints living here, like on one hand, um, and like no place is perfect. I've lived in New yeah. York. I've lived in Pittsburgh. I've lived in Doha. I've, you know, and I, I'm on a plane every few weeks for work. So I'm definitely able to, um, at least get a rough understanding of what life is like in a variety of different cities around the world. And I'm so endlessly grateful for, for living in this particular part of the Middle East, because it is very cosmopolitan and, you know, yeah. it, you know, regardless of what the media might say or what you might see on social or in the news, it is still quite a tolerant and, um, you know, collectivist part of the world. Um, people are welcomed with, you know, with open arms and then they come in troves and yeah. the, the, the kind of like funny saying about this part of the world is people come on two-year contracts and then joke about <laughs> celebrating their 14th year here because yeah. they just never wanted to leave. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean... I mean, I know for my parents, the only reason they, you know, moved back is because they have so many grandkids who live in America. Other Uh than that, my parents would have stayed living in the Emirates. Like they loved it there. Like they genuinely only had good things to say because they, and I also think that the, the Dubai that I knew is not the Dubai that it is now, which is what we were talking about earlier. But I think that right now there's such an appreciation for creatives there Mm -hmm. and I kind of have been, I'm like, I want to go back. Like, I want to see like what it's like. It's, I think it's really interesting kind of just the progress that's been made. And, and it's not even like, Oh, progress just cause it's like a country in the Gulf. I think just in general, like I would say I see more appreciation for creatives in Dubai than like most any other major cities. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like there uh-huh. really is such 
it just seems like a really big hub for creativity right now. It is. And it's like, you know, there's this, uh, there's been like the surgence of, um, kind of how, how do I phrase this? Like more of like an underground culture, like alternative culture, you know, people have, have created their own little like music scenes and there's like a DJ scene here and there's like really cool art galleries and, um, there's such a like burgeoning museum kind of landscape and culture landscape. And, uh, you know, obviously tourism and hospitality was always kind of one of the pinnacles of Dubai, yeah. but it's, it's grown so much. And, you know, the city's peripheries have stretched out so much and you see people doing really interesting things and launching really interesting businesses. And, you know, that's something that I, both my husband and I, we wanted to, to be a part of that. We wanted to like, be a part of a younger growing city um, because it just means that we can, we can capitalize on it too. Right. So like even from a financial point of view, you can possibly garner more success than say in a saturated market. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, so far so good. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking about, you know, kind of, you know, developing things, you, you have a brand and duo. So you're Mm -hmm. the, director or so, so what, I'm the which, creative director yeah. which okay. means I design um all the clothes at Enduo it's it's a really serendipitous story actually so a few years ago my sister and her husband um and my husband and I are on a communal whatsapp group okay. and we um prior to her having her son and when we had I mean, we're a year apart. We're all the same age. And um, I was living in Doha and she was living in Dubai. And we would try to plan like a couple's vacation every now and then um, just to get together. And she's like, hey, I think that we should go to Tbilisi. It's still like, this is like six years ago, five five years ago, maybe. Yeah. This was like, this is before like Tbilisi fashion week. This is before Demna came onto the scene. Like this is like before anyone knew anything about Georgian fashion. So I was like, like, ew, why would we go there? Like, (laughs) you know, I haven't read that up on any lonely planet guides. And she's like, no, no, it's supposed to be really cool. And like, you know, we've done all like the fancy places. Like let's go somewhere that's a little off the grid and let's try to discover something that's a bit like off kilter. Um, And then we kind of started Googling, you know, Tbilisi and and Georgia and it looked stunning. Like it was absolutely beautiful and it just looked so not like what we'd been used to, you know, on previous vacations. And so she booked it all. We went and then I see, um, I was like, wow, this is so, this is so cool. Like I really feel off the grid. Like no one would ever know me here. And then that night I see, um, a direct message from a local brand. And, um, they're like, hi, oh, we've been following you, you know, for, for a few months and we really like your style. And, um, we would love to like invite you to a lunch and just show you our brand and, you know, yada, 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 like the stuff you would usually get. Yeah, yeah. And I was excited. I'm like, Oh, this is cool. I, sh- you know, I work in fashion and I work in art. So this, I should, you know, maybe try to sink my teeth into the local fashion scene. So I went out to, to lunch next day with, with, um, the founders of the brand, um, Natuka, who's, you know, my partner now, and she's, uh, she's still with, uh, she's still with the brand. She's, she's the founder of the brand. Um, we had amazing Georgian lunch and, uh, we just had such a great time. They were just so wonderful and so kind. And, you know, Georgia is very, very family oriented, a lot like, like our culture. So yeah. everything's very personal. Um, anyway, we had a great time. I went back home and, you know, we hugged it out and we're like, Oh, we should keep in touch, whatever. And, um, you know, a few weeks later I, I heard from them and they were like, how do you feel about doing like a little capsule collection with us or a little collaboration collection? It was really nice to meet with you. And we feel like we could do something, um, together and maybe, um, launch it in Dubai. And that could be a market we explore because we're currently not there. And I was like, yeah, this sounds great. Mind you, it is my childhood dream, <laughs> dream. Yeah. To say that I designed this, like to put my name to like clothes. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And also like, literally you're telling me the story. I'm like, this is like kismet. Like it was meant to be like everything that 
kind of fell into place. Like I had no idea that this is like, this is an incredible story. Sorry, carry on. This is so cool. And like, I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like I have always wanted to design clothes. I won't need to like fund this thing. This is like amazing, you know? So we did it. Yeah. It's a dream. So we put together like a 12 look capsule collection for um, fall, winter, 2000 and holy shit. I don't even remember like what, 15, 16, <laughs> se- 17, 17, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 17. Um, it was either 16 or 17 fall, winter. And we launched it at Boutique One and it like, it was such an incredible experience. I was like, Oh my God, I can actually add fashion designer to my resume. Yeah. This is amazing. Um, and we had a great time. Like I think the girls, um, it's a family run business. First of all, I, I find it very important to say that because the way in which the girls at Enduo operate, it's two sisters. They're like, Oh wow. They're like my, they're like my sisters now. It's, it's such, I really feel like I'm half Georgian after having worked with them for so many years. Yeah. They're just so wonderful and honest. And it's just, you're in the presence of people that have really good energy, beautiful souls, an immense amount of integrity. And above all, they're just doing this because there's just such a mutual love to design pretty things more so than like, we want to become rich doing this, or we want to do, you know, like we're doing it for the Insta fame. It's, it's not about that at all with them anyway. So like fast forward, season one's done, collections over. Um, and they're like, you know, we had such a great time. Maybe we should just do one more and it would be a great way to bookend the collaboration. And I was like, yeah, like ditto, let's do it. Like we we've done fall, winter, let's do spring, summer. And you know, if, if you guys are, are happy, we can, that's a great way to just, you know, bookend the bookend the collaboration. So we did that. And again, it was met with a lot of praise and it was a wonderful experience and the collection did well. Um, Fast forward a year and a half or two years later, they're like, why don't you just join us full time and become creative director of the brand? Like it's your brand. You design the clothes. We're here to support. So Natuka is now the CEO slash founder. Um, and her and I kind of work on the collections together. And then Tina, um, is like the brand director, um, slash she's also like a co-CEO for the brand. It's a really family run business. We're such a small business. I think the whole team is like six, seven people. That's it. That's really crazy to me because first of all, like genuinely, like the pieces are beautiful. Like there's a top, I think it's called like the cloud nine top. Yeah. It's the most beautiful shirt. I've like, I, I don't even want to call it a shirt. It's like just a beautiful piece. And you Thank guys you. are stocked in so many great places. Like for, you know, you guys are killing it. Like six people. I would have never thought that like, yeah, you, you guys must be working your asses off because you're, you're doing tiny- it. It's a tiny operation based out of Tbilisi. We have like a small little atelier where we have like three or four women hired to like wow. make everything. You know, it's 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 artisanal. It's slow fashion. Yeah. It represents everything that we want to see in the fashion industry. I am just so um, scared of what fast fashion is doing to our planet. Yeah. I, I don't think that we should be wearing clothes for, you know, a week. I think yeah. we should be and things that can really live in our wardrobes and evolve and grow with us. And, you know, Enduo is all about, you know, marrying this kind of old eclectic sensibility. We want our clothes to like look vintage, but they're not vintage. Keep people guessing. We're very inspired by like the styles of Princess Diana. Someone Natuka and I like adored growing up. I mean, who doesn't love Princess Diana? Honestly, she's She's like everyone's forever style icon, right? And like, you know, we're, we're very, very enamored by, um, the, the fashions of like the late eighties and the nineties, like yeah. vintage Prada, vintage Mew Mew. We love the billowing silhouettes. We love print and color. And, and we've honestly like amazing women have given us the most fantastic feedback. So it really fuels us going forward that what we're doing is right. The product that we're offering is, is unique, you know, unto itself. And, and we're just really hoping that, you know, inshallah, knock on wood, that it just continues to, to like find its wings. And, and we, we're, we're really hoping that Enduo can, um, nestle in its own little niche that we've created for it. And I, I genuinely think that it's going to just continue kind of growing and, 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 
genuinely the pieces, like every piece that I've seen, I'm like, that's dope. That's dope. Like it's, it's stuff that you don't really see anywhere else, which I also Mm -hmm. think is what makes it really special because I think we're in a place right now in fashion where there's a lot of just copies of copies and everything kind of looks the same. And there's just like a lot of the same. Um, There are definitely some great brands out there that are doing different things, but I think what's being shared, especially on social media is all kind of the same for the most Mm -hmm. part. So Mm -hmm. it is really refreshing and inspiring to see these pieces. And I'm like, wow, this is cool. Like this is a special piece and you're not going to really see anything like it anywhere else, which if you really love fashion, that's what you want. You know what I mean? You want a piece that's special and, and what you were saying about pieces living in your wardrobe, that's, that's the goal. It's like, I never want to buy something if I think I'm going to wear it once, twice, five times. Mm -hmm. Like I want to wear this for years and years. I want it to go into my wardrobe and kind of go with anything. You know what I mean? Like it's just, I I mean, it's it's just so doable. It's just not even a sensible way to consume anymore. Like it's better to save up your, your, your coins and your dimes and your nickels and your dollars and, and, and really put it towards something that you really will derive a lot of pleasure, a lot of utility, a lot of wear out of. And, you know, I, I really want that for, for our brand. And it's, I mean, it's interesting because Zara just knocked us off and I was seething. I was seething and I was like, oh my God. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, no, I know. It's just, that's so frustrating and I I really hate that. But also, I think silver lining, you're doing something right. You know what I mean? Like when brands People start- joke, like if Zara's yeah. knocking you off, you're doing something right. Yeah. But it's, just- <laughs> it's, it's infuriating though, because there's a lot of yeah. probably time and creativity that went into, you know, designing that piece and to have a huge brand like Zara knock it off and make a shitty version of it. I have such weird feelings about Zara. Like I, mean, I can't, me, it's, it's just like, it's uh it's, you're, it's a theft. It's theft of intellectual property, and I it, find that it, hard to reconcile. And it's just like I I can't feel good about a purchase that I make from there. That's the point that I'm at. Like I I can't feel good about it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because you know it's it's a knockoff, or it's you know someone being paid nothing to make this. And there's just, that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I, mm-hmm. Zara for me kind of died. I, I remember when I was younger, I loved it so much. And it was within my, I guess, price range that I could afford when I was younger. So that was exciting because it was elevated pieces at the time. And But mm-hmm. I don't think Zara is the same Zara that it was in the early 2000s. It's just no, a completely it's just, different it's monster. It's just knockoff luxury. And yeah. it's just, I find it really troubling because I think, you know, not I completely, I'm the first to say not everybody can afford Chanel and Prada and Valentino, but there are amazing indie brands that have even like kind of come onto the scene via Instagram. You know, even if there's like the quote unquote social media brands that are doing such interesting things like Maison Clio or, um, you know, there's this, there's these really cute little vintage shops that have popped up on, on Instagram that are doing really cute things. And, um, you know, even brands like Nanushka and, um, that they're not, they're not, you know, at, uh, I mean, they're not cheap, but they're not luxury price point either. And also but- everything goes on sale, guys. Go on Farfetch. They have incredible sales that sometimes I'm like, how is this even this slow of a Completely. price right now? Or the real like, real. What? Or the real real. And, and also like genuinely some of my favorite pieces are all vintage pieces. And they're not like super expensive vintage pieces. They're yeah. all probably under... $70. You know what I my mean? Most, like my most profound purchase on the real real has been like this Loewe crop jacket that I bought for like $92. Oh, what a steal. And a brand new pair of Milan, uh, Manolo Blahnik stilettos for like $115. That's what I'm saying. You have like, and you have Vestier Collective and there's just mm-hmm. so many. And Depop, I feel like Depop is booming right now. Like I've been shopping on Depop more than I've been selling things on Depop. Up, which oh, is really? but like there's a lot of people who have really cool wardrobes like they have like a lot of vintage pieces in their wardrobes and it's been a great place for me to shop for vintage uh-huh. is on depop like just really cool tops and they're like under 20 dollars, and they're tops that i know i'm like i can wear this 
like 10 different ways and it's just going to live in my wardrobe and I'm going to be able to style it year after year and it's just going to work totally. with my personal style. And it, I just think there's so many alternatives, It you know, than shopping at Zara. I know that it, it, I totally get that. It's easy. I think that that's a, a lot of the reason why people it's continue easy, to shop. It's easy, it's cheap, it's accessible. It's yeah. got a very... Um, you know, product there has a very short life cycle. So people don't have a lot of guilt for dumping it after a few yeah. weeks or a couple of months. Um, but I just find it really hard to reconcile the fact that a lot of their clothes are ending up in landfills, the fact yeah. that they're ripping off intellectual property of other brands, the fact that it's just, you know, it, it's, it, it is potentially, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, when you, it, it, it's it's abusing uh, human rights, you know, yeah. like in terms yeah. of not being paid a fair wage, and you know, it's it, you know, there's a lot of wastage in terms of water consumption, or I'm not even sure if they're cognizant of their carbon footprint. I know yeah. a lot of these um, high street brands like Mango and H and M, and I know even Zara are trying to undertake measures to become more um, responsible and ethical. Yeah, but I think those are more. Enough. I think those tend to be more of like a PR stunt for me, at least from where yeah. I'm seeing it, and less so yeah. actually making a conscious effort to to remedy a lot of what they've done wrong over the course of their of their practice. Yeah, and I I definitely understand, or I see what you're, like I I agree with you that a lot of times it does just seem like they're doing this because they feel yeah. like it's what they should be doing and it'll help their image and it yeah. is definitely like a PR I mean, I, I thing. I don't want to I don't want to shame anyone that goes to Zara. Yeah. No, like, well, I don't no, no, do no, no, no. Yeah, like I mean, I, I, I get that for some people that they they love it or it's it's what they can afford. But I always say like guys, you know, vintage options are so much more interesting and they're far more unique and. Some would argue in the same price point as like yeah, high I mean, street. That's the thing. It's more just like I encourage you to kind of keep digging. You'll find other mm-hmm. alternatives that are less, I guess, for lack of better words, problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that I don't have pieces from Zara in my wardrobe. I do, but I've had them in my wardrobe for years and years and years. And and that's that's I think another thing is that. You can shop fast fashion if you really want to, but like be smart about it. You know what I mean? Buy things that you really love and that you think will last and aren't going to just totally fall apart. And also that you're just going to love and rewear over and over and take care of it. And I think that's another thing about, you know, kind of being more sustainable, take care of your clothes. You know what I mean? Like if, there's a little hole in your jeans sew the hole up or you know a shirt button falls off put the button back on like I think that you know because there are these really inexpensive options a lot of times like oh my white button down a button fell off so I'm just gonna buy a new white button down like just you know fix the white button down that you have and keep wearing it until you can't wear it anymore Absolutely. No, I can like, amen to that because I just feel like we need to find a way to lengthen our product life cycle. Yeah. We need to really let our clothes, clothes weren't made to, to just, you know, see the light of day once. Like they yeah. need, they deserve a, a full life, uh, like a lifespan. And so I'm trying to limit my consumption and it's really hard to do when you work in fashion. And also yes. I'm just like, I admit to like, I love to overconsume and overindulge. Like I'm, I am that girl. You know, I have my hand up right now. You can't see it. <laughs> um, I'm confessing, but um, as I get older, I do want to be more responsible in the way I yeah. consume. And I don't want to sound righteous or you know, like um, just like holier than thou. But I, I just think that you know we are facing some really troubling times in terms yeah. of wastage and and you know just just the general like impacts that it's having on, on our environment and on our planet. And, you know, I think luxury and, and, and high street and, and all of it, they, everyone needs to just kind of like join forces and be like, okay, we need to really find a way to mitigate the situation. Yeah. And I, and I think that there's a lot of progress being made and it, it is, it's nice to see brands and people trying, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I really do think that a lot of people are kind of feeling that responsibility now and really trying to rectify or remedy what's been happening. And it is really encouraging. And, 
you know, and that's the thing that I like to talk about it, not to, you know, be like, oh my God, I'm sustainable queen because I definitely, you know, ate a acai bowl yesterday and there was like 10,000 pieces of plastic to put it together, but it's just like, okay, now I know that this place uses a shit ton of plastic and maybe next time I won't take it to go from this particular place. Like, you know what I mean? Like you just kind of try your best and don't get mad at yourself if you're not doing everything right. Just like how, you know, everything is in with life, which is what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. Like humans, you know, we we're just kind of learning as we go it's I'm very hard on myself and Mm -hmm. I think a lot of women in general are very critical of themselves that's a characteristic that I think unfortunately a lot of women have which can also help you excel in a lot of ways but can also you know be kind to yourself you know treat Mm -hmm. yourself the way you would treat your sister or your friend or someone that you really love and and give yourself room to kind of grow and learn from your mistakes and get better and you know just generally be a a happier person. And I think right now in 2020, a part of being a happier person is being responsible and aware of the kind of impact that we've had on the environment. Totally. Totally. Me and my little, I I go on these rants every few weeks on my podcast, (laughs) but honestly, it's important though. It's necessary. I think these like kind of awakenings and these reminders are really, really necessary. Yeah. Um, but it's honestly been so nice to talk to you. Uh, I'm Likewise. going to harass you now all the time. If I come to Dubai, I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> no but, harassment. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can they find Enduo? Plug all the things. So, you know, if, if Instagram is the kind of thing that you guys enjoy, <laughs> you can find me on Desert Mannequin. I have a website, um, which is www.desertmannequin.com. If listening to a podcast is your thing, which I'm hoping it is because you're probably <laughs> listening to this one, you yeah. can find me across various podcast streaming uh, platforms under DMFM. Um, Enduo is Enduo official on Instagram, and you can shop us on um, shop up. You can find us at Selfridges. We are at a number of different uh, retail outlets around the world, and we have our own e-commerce website as well. So that's N as in Night Duo D U O official on Instagram to find more information. And I really think you guys will love N Duo, so definitely check it out. And as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Nor E. You can follow the podcast at Arab American Psycho on Instagram. And if you enjoyed hearing us chat, leave a review on iTunes. Leave me some stars, five preferably. And I will chat with you guys next Sunday.